If you have your uh, Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 12. Gospel of Luke and chapter 12. Once you get there, we will be in verses 13 through 21. If you don't have a scripture journal, by the way, and you want one, uh, maybe when we started the series, uh, you weren't here, or you lost yours, or uh, you filled yours with copious amounts of notes, um, we have some extra journals that we ordered there on the welcome desk. Feel free to go grab one now or after uh, the service, and uh, that'll be $4 American if you want one of those, um, and uh, that will help you as we work our way through the Gospel of Luke. So today we're going to be in verses 13 through 21. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's uh, read this together. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. I still hear pages flipping. You didn't have it at all. <laughs> All right, Luke 12, verse 13, God's word says, someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Amen. This is God's word. And may God write eternal truths in all of our hearts. If you were to rewrite the Ten Commandments, what would they include? This is a question that was presented as a PR stunt to uh, promote a book about the beliefs of atheistic, secular humanists uh, nearly a decade ago. And it came with a $1,000 cash prize for those New commandments that people uh, came up with, and if theirs was chosen. The commandments that were chosen, they're pretty unsurprising, and to be honest, uninspired. And I mean that in more ways than one. The list includes things like, be open-minded. The scientific method is the most reliable way to understand the world. Uh, there is no right way to live. That God isn't necessary to be a good person. And that we should, uh, you know, leave the world a better place than we found it. And while we know the Ten Commandments is given by God are perfect and no need of revisions, right? That silly little, silly little PR stunt by that group of secular humanists got me wondering. If every person was asked that same question, what would, what would Ten Commandments written by you look like, I wonder? I, I wonder what, what some of your answers would be. I wonder most of all what Christians, if asked this question, what, what their version of the Ten Commandments would look like or include. Of course, we want to say that they should be left as is, right? And obviously this is true. We do not have freedom or authority to rewrite or revise God's holy statutes. But I do wonder if people were polled what their Ten Commandments list would include and what would be left out. I think, don't you, some of the original Ten Commandments would be included in most Christians' lists, right? Um, things like God alone is God. Uh, murder is bad. Stealing's bad. Adultery is bad. Honoring your father and mother, those are good things. Uh, we may even include keeping the Sabbath, right? Because we both need and enjoy times of rest and decompression. We could universally agree that murder is wrong. We, we could all agree that stealing is bad. We, we could all agree that we should honor our parents. Uh, these are not only non-controversial, but they're pretty well assumed that we can obey them, right? You could not kill someone, yep. You could not steal. Well, we think we could obey these things. But there's one commandment in particular that I'm certain would not make the cut in most, if any, of the list. Not only is the one I'm thinking of not something anyone thinks they're guilty of, not only is it something most people don't think is actually bad, but it's something that our society actively promotes as a good thing. The command I'm talking about is the command not to covet. 
not to desire other people's stuff, not to be greedy. I'm confident. Now, this is a command that would not make it. So, so what if I desire something I don't have, right? This is what we think. Is that wrong? So what if I want more stuff? What's wrong with wanting more stuff? So what if I want bigger this and newer that? After all, is that not the whole idea of the American dream? Not only do most people not think, they're, not think greed and covetousness are wrong, but almost no one thinks they're guilty of it. In his excellent book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller, who pastored for decades in Manhattan, New York, he tells of a time when he was doing a seven-part Bible study for a men's breakfast on the theme of the seven deadly sins. And he's dealing, of course, with a sin per week of the seven deadly sins. His wife, Kathy, told him, I bet that the week you deal with greed, you'll have your lowest attendance. And you know what? She was right. People packed it out for lust and wrath and even pride, but not greed. Why? He says it's because nobody thinks they're greedy. Greed, he said, blinds people. It hides itself from the victim. The money, God's modus operandi, includes blindness to your heart. Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that covetousness and greed are sneaky and subtle killers. He knows that they are sins in which we are prone to either not see as sins or otherwise find ways to justify them when confronted or convicted. Stanley Hauervoss said, it's not sin, it's sickness. The problem is that in the world in which we live, we have learned to call greed ambition or providing for my family. We've learned to call greed getting ahead. We've learned to call greed working for a better life. As Calvin puts it, we have managed to blacken mirrors so that we no longer see ourselves. It is greed, covetousness, and an earthly worldview that Jesus addresses in our text this morning. And we would be wise to listen to what he says, to really hear him, to avoid the temptation to nuance his words to death, to avoid thinking that this problem is not a problem for us, to be honest with our hearts and posture towards earthly treasure, lest we be fools. In verse 13, we find ourselves still in the midst of Jesus' teaching to the crowds. The first group Jesus addresses, however, are his own followers. And we've seen the last two weeks that this section's emphasis is the importance of seeking God's priorities and agendas, to align our priorities and our concerns with Christ and kingdom, to live for another world and not for this one. And, says Jesus, you could do all that because you entrust your care to God as Jesus is teaching about hypocrisy and fearing man and God's care for his people and blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and giving allegiance to Jesus and not denying him before men, some guy in the crowd, apparently not at all listening to what Jesus is saying because he's preoccupied with his own problems, right? He speaks up about this family dispute he has. And he says, Rabbi, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, while it may be weird that this man interrupted Jesus, and it is, with his petty family concern, the truth is that rabbis would often be the ones who were called upon to handle disputes like this about things like inheritance. But what this guy wants isn't Jesus to hear both of the brothers' arguments and then render a judgment. He once clearly tells Jesus that Jesus needs to just decide in his favor you see that? He says, tell my brother to give me my stuff. This is a grown man. It's like when a kid, you've, you've had this happen to you. A kid is fighting with their sibling or playmate, and they go up to you, and they tell you, tell so-and-so to give me my toy. Tell them to share. Tell them to give me my turn. They don't want you to hear both sides, do they? No, no. They just want you to decide in their favor and force that other kid to do what they want to do. That's what this man's approach to Jesus is like. But, but Jesus isn't going to do what that man asks, and he says, man, who made me an arbitrator or judge over you? Of course, there is a sense in which Jesus has been appointed, yes, judge and arbitrator, but that appointment comes by way of the Father, not this guy. On top of that, Jesus is saying that his current mission is not to sit and judge fam familial disputes about inheritance. His mission is much, much, much bigger than that. But look what Jesus does next. He turns to the disciples and to the crowd and says, take care. 
And be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in abundance of his possessions. See, Jesus, do you see what he does? He detects the underlying problem in this man's request. He knows that behind that request is a covetous heart that's laser-focused on his rights and his money and his possessions and his true desires. And this is often what Jesus does, isn't it? Someone wants to bring attention to one thing while Jesus draws the focus to what's really going on underneath. The man says, Jesus, tell my brother to give me what's coming to me. And Jesus instead, he redirects the question to the man's own heart. Jesus often does this when people approach him to make a decision. He redirects the focus as if to say, look at yourself first. This is not what, what Jesus does with us. But we may want to look out there and see problems that we detect in others. But Jesus is constantly asking us, what about what's going on in your heart? We want to mow over the weeds, but Jesus wants to get to the root. We want to divert attention, but Jesus wants us to stare into the mirror. But also notice that rather than address the man directly, it says that Jesus turned to them. Do you see that in your text? To them. He turns to the crowd to give a lesson about covetousness and greed and a proper worldview. He tells them all, be careful. Take care. Be on your guard. Why does he do that? Why call for everyone to be on guard against covetousness and greed? Why turn from a request about inheritance from some guy to an object lesson on a right posture towards possession? Well, here's why. You know the answer, don't you? Because greed is a danger for everyone. It's a danger for you. It's a danger for me. It's a danger for us all. And we would be called fools to think that this warning is not for us. Not one single person who could hear my voice can say that greed is not something that they need to watch for or guard against. Not one. Not one of us can say that we aren't prone to greed and covetousness. Not one. Tim Keller says, it's one or the other. You either serve God or you become open to slavery to serve mammon. Nowhere is this slavery more evident than in the blindness of greedy people to their own materialism. Yet even though it is clear that the world is filled with greed and materialism, almost no one thinks it's true of them. They're in denial. This is why Jesus is warning us now. Watch out! And notice also that he says all kinds of covetousness, doesn't he? All kinds. That means that you could be covetous and greedy towards more than just money and possessions. Truly, no one is exempt from this danger. The warning is urgent. Be on your guard. Beware. Watch out. Take care, is what Jesus says. This is a call for constant vigilance, to not drop your watch, to never get to a place of self-righteous smugness that says, I'm not greedy. I'm not in danger of being greedy. I have no need of evaluating my relation to my money or my stuff or my ambition. And look, Jesus is telling people, what's the context here? He's telling people in a largely poor society to watch for covetousness and greed. This isn't a danger for only the wealthy, is it? It's a danger for all people. Michael Rhodes writes, if the biblical author's thought a peasant's love of money could drag them to hell, what would they have to say to us? We have to get that this is a danger for all of us because, again, if we want to get out of Jesus' lesson on money and wealth and greed, we could do it. We could do it. If this was just a lesson for the wealthy, everyone can convince themselves that they aren't wealthy. Right? All you have to do is look at others because there will always be someone right? Who has more money than you? Always. Or they have a nicer this or a newer that. If you want to do that, you can do that. Keller again says, everyone tends to live in a particular socioeconomic bracket. You will always find yourself surrounded by quite a number of people who have more money than you. You don't compare yourself to the rest of the world. (laughs) You compare yourself to those in your bracket. The human heart always wants to justify itself, and this is one of the easiest ways. You say, I don't live as well as him or her or them. My means are modest compared to theirs. You can reason and think like that no matter how lavishly you are living. This warning and parable that follows is for all. 
Jesus is saying to one and all, be vigilant. Warning, you are in danger. How foolish would it be to not heed our master's warning? Imagine for a moment that one day, your neighbors alerted to you the fact that there had been a string of robberies in the area. How would you respond? Would you uh, leave your keys in your car? Would you keep your door unlocked and open? Would you? Uh, would you uh, forget to set your security alarm? Would you keep your, open, your windows open and unsecured? Would you say, you know what, there are other houses in the neighborhood, they probably won't rob my house. Is that the posture you would take? Or would you be extra vigilant and especially sure? You might check your window and door lock seven or eight times before you go to bed, right? You'd be especially sure that all windows and doors are locked and the alarm was set. Jesus is calling for this sort of vigilance in your heart towards greed and covetousness, to work under the assumption that it's a real and present danger that lurks in your heart. So to make this point, Jesus tells a parable about a rich man who had plentiful harvest, which put him in a conundrum, right? He, he didn't have big enough barns to store all his stuff. So what he did was he sought counsel from his most trusted source, himself. He decided that if, if he tore down his small barns, replaced them with bigger ones, he'd have enough room to store his stuff, and then he could just relax, right, and eat and drink and live a nice and happy, comfortable life. What, you know what the problem was? He died that day, didn't he? <laughs> he died that day. Now, like most of Jesus' parable, this one is disarming and in more ways than one. It's also unique in that it's the only parable in which God is an explicit actor in the story. But it's disarming because I think this lesson sneaks up on us, doesn't it? We hear this story about a guy and he's doing well. And Jesus never condemns him for either being rich or for being prosperous, does he? Further, the man makes his fortune seemingly through acceptable means. We aren't, we aren't told he's nefarious or a swindler. We aren't told he takes advantage of people or that he stole or was a liar or that he cheated his employees. In fact, Jesus tells us that he really didn't do much at all. It was the field that prospered, <laughs> which makes the prosperity almost accidental. But every step of the way, the man does what makes sense, doesn't he? And in fact, he's a perfectly natural and understandable dilemma on his hands. So we read it and we think, your barns are too small? Absolutely, tear them down and build bigger ones, right? That makes sense. That's what I would do. We think, you're planning for the future <laughs> and for retirement? That's smart. You should do that. I'm planning for mine. We think, you want to enjoy some relaxation because of how well you did this year? You definitely should. I plan to take more vacations this year as well. And not only are the things he does understandable, but they're actually pretty smart. Aren't they? And Jesus treats them as neutral. But let's take it a step further. We read this parable. We hear about this man. And we want to be this man. We want our kids to be this man. Do we not? Who doesn't want to have more than enough? Who doesn't want to have a sweet retirement plan? Who doesn't want to prosper in whatever field they happen to be in? This man is living the American dream 1,700 years before there was an America. And we want to live the American dream too, don't we? You know, we could be like uh, Teve from Fiddler on the Roof. Do you remember him? And sing, if I were a rich man, wondering what it would be like if we just had a little more or a little better. Or like him, when someone tells us, you know, money's the world's curse, we could say, may the Lord smite me with it, and may I never recover. The surprise of this parable for us, living in affluent Western culture, isn't that the guy did well. That's not the surprise. Or that he tore down his barns to build bigger ones. Or that he wanted to retire living high on the hog. That all makes sense. The surprise for us is that God thinks he's a fool. 
we think this guy's an ideal for a successful life. God thinks he's a fool. You compare this to compare this to a story that Jesus tells later in Luke. He's at the temple, and he sees these wealthy fellas coming up to the front, and they're putting in these like publisher clearinghouse checks. Do you remember those publisher clearinghouse checks? Like in the offering, and they're filled out with you know so much money that they're, maybe they'll name a wing of the temple after these guys, right? And then he saw a poor widow who puts in two bucks. That's all she had, he says. He praises her, doesn't he? But he's unimpressed with those wealthy dudes and their massive checks. In our context, let's be honest, okay? The widow would be considered the fool. And the rich man in the parable would be the smart and astute and forward-thinking businessman. Why did the widow give all her money away? Why didn't she invest it? And then maybe she'd have a better life. Maybe she should have asked the rich man man in the parable how to use money correctly. But that's not how Jesus sees money and possessions and priorities, is it? The widow is to be praised, and the rich man is to be pitied. Why? See, and we always have to offer this caveat, don't we? And the fact that, you know, when I'm thinking about this, it's madness that we feel like we have to offer these caveats and these nuances to death. It says something about our love for money and stuff, I think. But Jesus doesn't think money and possessions themselves are bad, does he? We always have to say that, right? We don't get too offended. It's true. They're neutral things. Money, possessions, these are inanimate, neutral things, right? What's not neutral is our approach to it. That's what's at issue here. Church Father Clement illustrated this by comparing it to a musical instrument. If you don't know how to play an instrument, if you try to play it, it will be assaulting to everyone's ears, right? If you possess the skill to play the instrument, however, you will produce a wondrous melody and harmonies. He said, wealth is an instrument of this kind. If you are able to make a right use of it, then it will serve justice. If it is wrongly used, then it will serve injustice, for its nature is to serve, not rule. So what is to be destroyed is not one's possessions, but the passions of the soul which hinder the right use of one's property. By thus becoming virtuous and good, a man will be able to make good use of his riches. So what are the dangers and warnings that Jesus is giving to us through this parable? There are a lot, but I want us to consider three with the little time we have left, okay? Three things that the man in the parable didn't take into account, okay? that we must see and heed. Three things he didn't take into account. First, he didn't take God into account. He didn't take God into account. God wasn't factored in for a single second in this man's planning, was he? Not only that, but the man didn't thank God. He didn't credit God for his abundance. Consider again, Jesus says in verse 16, look at verse 16, that it is the land that produced plentifully. The land. (laughs) God is the one who blessed the man with his riches and his newfound abundance. But to whom does the man turn for counsel? He doesn't look to God. He he doesn't even look to neighbors or peers, any such thing. What does he say in verse 17? He thought to himself, what shall I? I do, for I have nowhere to store what? My crops. And then he says in verse 19, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up. Do you see? Where is God in all this? How does God factor into the equation? Not only does he not credit God for his blessing, he doesn't go to God to ask what he should do with them. Instead, his first counsel is himself and his counselor is a fool. And why is he a fool? See, a fool is not someone who is stupid. That's not what is meant by fool in the Bible. He's a fool because he's unwise. He's not dumb. Like we said, everything he he does is pretty smart, right? Rather, he is hapless. His thinking, godless. That's what folly is. That's why the psalmist says that a fool is someone who says there's no God. 
His primary foolishness is to leave God out of the picture. This is folly. Even if he, this man is religious, he's a functional atheist. To not view money and possession the way God says to view them, this is folly. This is foolishness. To think that there can be things in our lives not under Jesus' lordship, this is foolishness. The rich man's first and greatest problem is his godless approach. He's a practical atheist. Isn't that an apt description? At what point did the rich man consider God? When did he thank God? When did he ask God what he should do with his newfound prosperity? Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was writing on Jesus saying in Matthew 6 that you can't serve God and money. And he said, you know, Christians decry so-called atheistic materialism. He said Christians decry this all the time. But, you know, Lloyd-Jones said, before we feel too happy about our decrying those atheists, we must remember that all materialism is atheistic. You can't serve God and money, he said. If money is compelling you and controlling you, then it is godless. And in fact, he said that materialism that thinks it's godly may be worse than atheistic materialism. The atheists leave God out because they don't worship him. That makes sense. But what about those who cloak their love of money in religious language? What's their excuse for leaving God out of the equation? The follower of Jesus must see from whom everything they have comes. This is why Jesus reminded, if you just look up in your text earlier, that God looks after the sparrows. But you're worth infinitely more than a bunch of sparrows. So how much more does he look out for you and your needs? Thus, isn't everything you have because of God? And for what purpose did he give you what you have? This is what's at issue here. What's the purpose of everything you own? See, part of our culture's devotion to the American dream is our devotion to making sure everyone knows how hard we work, right? And how we've earned everything we've got. We make sure people know that. There isn't, there isn't quite a pride, is there? And satisfaction like the pride of enjoying the fruits of your labor. But even if we worked hard, we must understand that we can only do so because of the graciousness of God. Don't you see? We might boast of being self-made, but we must realize no one's truly self-made. Just as God made the rich man's crops yield abundantly, he made your heart pump daily. Yes? He made air push in and out of your lungs. He made it so that you could have muscles to do labor and brain to remember information. If he wanted to require your life on any of those occasions, he could have done it. But he didn't. He allowed you to work and learn and continue to live. And so really, really, who should be thanked for everything that you have? Another problem for the rich man was that he thought his stuff was his didn't he? When really his stuff was God's stuff. <laughs> the rich man said, what should I do with my crops? I'll tear down my barns and I'll store my grains and my goods. He thought his stuff was his and his alone. And can't we be susceptible to the same posture? There's a story about John Wesley and he was traveling and he was away from home. And a man came riding up to him on a horse distraught, panicking, right? And the man was shouting as he approached Wesley. He said, Mr. Wesley, Mr. Wesley, something terrible has happened. Your house has burned to the ground. You know what Wesley said? He said, no, the Lord's house burned to the ground. That means one less responsibility for me. Wesley knew from whom his house came. And he believed it wasn't really his anyway, and therefore he's able to hold on to it loosely. But the rich man didn't only leave God out of the equation in his failure to thank him or acknowledge him. He left out God by not asking God why he had been blessed and what he was to do with that blessing. He never asked, why was I given this wealth? But why has God blessed me with this way? To what purpose? For what reason? If he asked that, the conclusion he would come to is not the one we find here. The answer wouldn't be retire to a lavish lifestyle. 
But that's the answer he comes to because he lives on the surface of things. He never discerns the possibility of God is offering daily. If only he had eyes to see. By all appearances, he is blessed, but his blessing mutates into a curse through his lack of discretion. And so it is for us. We need to ask why God has given us what he has. If the answer we come to is so I can eat and drink and be merry and maybe one day retire without a care in the world, or so I could spend it on me and my family to live lavishly, then we are fools. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. We assume that God has richly blessed us so that we could be comfortable and happy and satisfied. Then we've missed it, man. Missed it. Rather, God has blessed us so that we can bless. He has blessed us so that we can leverage those blessings for the kingdom and for others. And that brings us to our second point. The second thing he didn't take into account was others. He didn't account for others, did he? Look how selfish and self-centered this is, his words are in verses 17 through 19. Look again at your text. He sings a doxology to himself. And he uses the first person pronouns 11 times. Look, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, do you see? He has an excessive self-interest and self-focus. Christopher Hall says, what characterizes the rich fool's foolishness? He never entertains the possibility that his full barns, God's blessing on his life, have been given to him for the sake of others rather than only himself. He foolishly, undiscerningly, responds to divine blessing by immediately forming plans to build bigger barns. He will hoard what he has been given, and from his perspective, the hoarding will provide safety and security. Church Father Chrysostom said that there's nothing more wretched than this attitude. Augustine was preaching on this, and he said, this silly fool of a man was hoarding perishable crops. I repeat, he said, he was hoarding perishable crops. He was planning to fill his soul with excess and unnecessary feasting and was proudly disregarding all those empty bellies of the poor. I love this line. Listen to this line from Augustine. He did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. The man thought only of himself. He only cared about how he could enjoy what God had given him. Instead of using it to feed others, he stored it for his future. A future he actually had no control over. As we see by his sudden demise. And there's some irony for you here, isn't there? He had all of this stuff that he was going to hoard only for himself, and then he died. Which means that the only person who didn't get to enjoy his stuff was him. Others got to enjoy his stuff after his death, but he didn't get to enjoy it. In verse 20, God says, your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, who will they be? Someone else is going to enjoy his stuff, and he isn't going to enjoy it even though he planned it for himself and no one else. What if instead he shared what God had blessed him with? What's the essence of greed? Is it not keeping what resources God brings your way for yourself? No, it is. Is this not Jesus' complaint here? That one would take wealth and direct it totally selfward. Doesn't verse 21 make that clear? That he has laid up treasure only for himself. In the moral problem here that he mismanaged his wealth. Now again, if we're being honest, we might read the actions of the man and actually admire him. That's kind of the point, though, right? What he did was so understandable. <laughs> so understandable. Now, most people have done exactly the same thing that he did. So we might think he manages wealth properly, but Jesus says not so fast. He actually mismanaged it, and why? Because he gave no thought to others. Do you remember when the ghost of Scrooge's former business partner, Jacob Marley, appeared before him? Remember that? 
you know, during his life, Marley was uh, just like Scrooge. He's just like him. He was good at business. He was prudent. He was hard and stingy. And now from the realm of the departed, the spirit of Marley appears and he's condemning himself and he's warning Scrooge to the same fate. As the ghost of Marley wrings his hands and laments his shortcomings when he is alive, Scrooge tries to console him. And he says, but you were a good man of business, Jacob. That's when Marley's ghost cries out, business, mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, benevolence were all my business. See, Jacob Marley realizes too late what his real business in life was supposed to be. The rich man, too, was good at business. But he didn't realize he wasn't supposed to be good at business just to be good at business. He wasn't good at business just to bless himself. God had blessed him so that he could be a blessing, don't you see? But like old Jacob Marley, he would learn too late. Friend, we know all these things, don't we? You can't take it with you, we say. You've never seen a U-Haul on the back of a hearse, we say. Life is short, we say. Life is fragile, we say. Life is uncertain, we say. You could die at any moment, we say. We know life is more than possessions. We look at Jesus' words in verse 15. We just nod our heads because we've heard it before. But do we actually live like we know we can't take it with us? Do we live like we know? That life is more than stuff. I mean, do we? We know it's not bad to have possessions. But that it becomes a problem when things possess us. And we hear that and we think to ourselves, my stuff doesn't possess me. (laughs) Are you sure? Are you? This whole time I've been, I've been preaching, you might have thought, I'm not greedy. Are you sure? How do you know? How do you know you aren't like the rich man? How do you know? How can we know as a church sitting in this building with those cars in the parking lot that we aren't the rich man? Are are our collective storehouses being filled for ourselves when better storehouses of the poor's bellies remain empty? Are we investing in stuff that won't last for a future we may not have while ignoring investments in eternity? John Wesley, I mentioned him earlier, he tells another story of how he just went to the store and he bought himself some pictures for his room. And he was hanging up these pictures in, the, in his room when a chambermaid came to the door. And it was winter. And he noticed that she had only a, a thin linen gown to wear for protection against the cold. And that's it. And he reached into his pocket to give her some money for a coat, and he found he didn't have enough left. It struck him that the Lord was not pleased with how he had spent his money. And he asked himself, Will thy master say, well done, good and faithful steward? Thou hast adorned thy walls with the money that might have screened this poor creature from the cold. O justice, O mercy, are not these pictures the blood of this poor maid? Was it wrong for Wesley to buy some pictures for his room? Of course not. His point was that his perspective on his possessions changed once he opened his eyes to the world in need around him. Wesley learned that lesson in time. The rich man did not. Will we? We have to realize that there is never going to come a day when we stand before God and he looks at us and says, I wish you would have kept more for yourself. What if we asked how everything we have been blessed with could be used for the kingdom? What if we had an eternal perspective on even the stuff that God has blessed us with? Isn't the fact that we know we are eternal creatures and yet are tempted to live for the temporal rather the eternal, not madness? It's not about madness. If there's anybody in the world who knows that we are eternal creatures and that 
The world is going to pass away. It's Christians. And yet, how tempted are we to live for this earth and not the kingdom to come? This parable would be humorous if it weren't so confronting. It would be silly to live for this world when we know there's one to come that lasts literally forever. And yet, how tempted are we to live for now with no eye to the new heavens and new earth? Some of you remember Jack Benny. <laughs> Jack Benny, he was a comedian. He had an old uh, radio and TV show. He had this running gag, if you remember, where it centered on how stingy he was. And in the most popular routine, a robber came up to him, and he put a gun to Benny's back, and he said, your money or your life? And there was a long pause <laughs> as Benny thought about it. And of course, the audience would start to laugh, right? And after a few moments, the robber would say, your money or your life? And, and Benny would say, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. And people would laugh because of how absurd that was. What good is money if you're dead? Right? But maybe part of the reason we would laugh at that is because we're tempted to do the same false perspective. We spend too much time thinking about our temporal happiness that we lose sight of the nature of eternity. This is the third, our, the third thing that the man didn't take into account, our third and final point. He didn't take eternity into account. That's point number three. The man's focus is clearly only earthy right? That's why he's a fool. He thought only about making life good here and didn't think about eternity at all. He wasn't rich towards God because he thought life consisted of one's possessions. He planned for retirement, thinking he had control over his life, but his soul was what he should have stewarded the most, yet it's the thing he stewarded the least. When God required his soul of him, the man found out that he was actually bankrupt. What he learned was that his earthly wealth bought him exactly nothing in eternity. He learned that night that, as Tertullian would say, nothing that is God's is obtainable by money. Klein Snodgrass says, The parable points to the uncertainty and fragility of life, but is concerned most with God's verdict on those who trust their wealth. The intervention of death aborts the man's plans and shows how foolish they were. His possessions are no basis for life and security. And here's another reason why this parable is so relevant and confronting to we who live in the 21st century uh, American context, because we're told at every turn that life is measured by what we have. Isn't that true? Fullness of life, say advertisers, is about what you can get and what you can show and who can see and be jealous of you and could covet your stuff. We're measured by our clothes and our houses and our cars, our neighborhoods that we live in, even these incessant rectangles that we carry around in our pockets and purse is a measurement of our lives. We are promised that fullness can be obtained by running this goofy hamster wheel. But isn't it just that? A hamster wheel? Don't you just keep having to buy the newer and then better and it never... Freaking ends, does it? Running this hamster wheel doesn't go anywhere. It just leaves us tired. But hey, at least our hamster wheel is a newer model than our neighbors, right? Hey, have you seen my new hamster wheel? But what, what, with all, what, what will all of that do when we stand before the throne of God? Not a thing. Peter Kreft said, wealth can buy everything that money can buy. Unfortunately, it cannot buy a single thing that money cannot buy, meaning purpose, happiness, peace, or love. It can also not give us favor with God or save our souls. John Piper gave an illustration. He says, picture 269 people entering eternity through a plane crash in the Sea of Japan. Before the crash, there is a noted politician, a millionaire corporate executive, a playboy and his playmate, a missionary kid on the way back from visiting grandparents. After the crash, they stand before God, utterly stripped of MasterCards, checks books, credit lines, image clothes, how to succeed books, and Hilton reservations. Here are the politician, the executive, the playboy, and the missionary kid, all on level ground with nothing, absolutely nothing in their hands possessing only what they brought in their hearts. He said, how absurd. 
and tragic the lover of money will seem on that day. Like a man who spends his whole life collecting train tickets and in the end is so weighed down by the collection that he misses the last train. Don't spend your precious life trying to get rich, Paul says, for we brought nothing into the world and we could take nothing out of it. So Jesus' issue in this section is that one must have an eternal perspective if they are his disciple. A disciple of his lives for the next world in this one. The problem isn't that we have desires in this world that make us want too much. That's not the problem. It's that we want too little. When we live for only or primarily this world, we are settling. Don't you see? Well, why settle for the comfort in this world when there's a whole other one to live for? C.S. Lewis once said in his sermon called The Weight of Glory that Jesus finds our desires not too strong but too weak. He said, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Living for this world and not the next is settling for less. Why be so concerned with being rich in this world when we could be rich towards God? You know what we say? I could do both. Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure you don't need to do some reflecting? Can't we all? Can I ask, where's your treasure? Where's your focus? What in life do you count as really important? What do you daydream about? See, whatever your treasure is, that's what is going to govern your life. Isn't that what Jesus says? There your heart will be also. So friend, what governs yours? Guys, it's just you and the Lord and your heart right now. Okay? You can answer honestly. There's no need to, for pretense before the Lord. What we value tugs on our minds and emotions and consumes our time and planning and effort. So what do you value? Don't you see that wherever you are fixing your gaze is where your feet will take you? You know, when I was a kid in Colorado, there was freshly, we had this thing called snow. And this freshly fallen snow, it was so inviting when there's a blanket of snow to go play and walk through as it glistened in the winter sun. And you look and there are no marks, right? No footprints. It's, it's incredible. You get to walk through it and make a new path. But here's the thing, okay? If you want to go in a straight line across the field or the park or your yard or wherever, and you just look down at your feet the whole time, guess what? You would look back and see the most erratic pattern ever. But if you fix your eyes on a tree across the field or a rock or some other object that's solid and you walk straight towards it, the path you will leave is remarkably straight. <laughs> If we fix our eyes on Jesus and he is our treasure, we will live a life that is rich towards God. But if we fix our eyes down below, on our own lives, on our own feet, on our own wants, on our own desires, we will drift constantly because our hearts will take us there. To be rich toward God is to look to Jesus and entrust your care to the God who cares for even sparrows. Aren't you more valuable than they are? Is wealth bad? No, not in itself. Is wealth good? No, not in itself. Is it better to be rich or poor? Not really. That's not the issue here. The issue here is where is your heart? What treasure do you most prize? What world are you living for? Whose riches are you most concerned with? Jesus wants to know, like last week, where is your allegiance? We don't need to soften or adjust our Lord's words. We want to, but we need not. We don't need to make excuses. We don't need to keep reassuring ourselves with this constant refrain of not me. We need to be honest. Snodgrass said the parables like this one strike a tender nerve, especially when we admit to ourselves, as we should, that we want to be like the rich fool. We need to ask, what is Jesus actually saying? What is he warning us about? 
He says our souls are at stake here. This man thought he could control his destiny and he could hoard and he could buy his way into heaven, but none of that did him a lick of good when he was standing naked before God that night. He was a fool. And anyone who lays up treasure for themselves and is not rich towards God is a fool. And anyone who thinks their life consists in their abundance of their possessions is a fool. Alistair Begg said in his sermon on this text, is there a problem with having barns? No. Those of you who have barns, don't go home and go, I'm going to burn my barn tonight. That's not the point, is it, he said. But if I've got something tonight that holds me rather than me holding it, maybe I should go home and give it away or burn it or do something with it. The text is calling for all of us to do some serious introspection, isn't it? You know, I don't care if you leave here today mad at me and you want to fist fight me just now. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? What does he mean? We want to be rich, but are we rich towards the right thing? Friend, if your soul was called on tonight, would God call you a fool or a child? What are we truly rich towards? You know, Jesus was rich. He's the creator God, after all. (laughs) Everything that there is belongs to him, but he doesn't need anything. And even though he was rich, he became poor. Why? For you. So you could be rich towards God. He knew you couldn't earn or buy your way into reconciliation with God. He knew you couldn't purchase atonement for your sins. He knew you couldn't buy your way out of rebellion. The American dream might say you can pull yourself up by your own bootstrap, but you can't do that to get into the kingdom of God, and he knew that. So he emptied himself to give you everything that is his. He became poor so you could be rich in treasures that are kept safely up in heaven where no moth or rust destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. It's funny, isn't it? The scene starts with a man saying to Jesus, tell my brother to give me the piece of my inheritance. And Jesus, in his own emptying himself and becoming poor, actually offers to bring us into his inheritance. Well, only he inherited. He's trying to keep to himself. He wants, doesn't want to keep to himself. He wants to give it to you too. And the greatest, most valuable, most precious jewel we receive from him is him. The thing about living for riches of this world is we can't just cease living for it or being overly concerned about it, just through grit and determination, it has to be replaced. It has to be supplanted by the one who, though rich, became poor, so that we might be truly rich and live for more than this passing world.